0: Welcome to the Created to Flourish podcast, where we'll explore the believer's call to respond to great global need. In each episode, we'll be reading a chapter from a book called Created to Flourish, co-authored by Peter Greer and Phil Smith, and we'll examine how employment-based solutions empower families to use their God-given abilities to serve their communities. I'm your host, Hannah Ruth, Hope International's Regional Representative in Minnesota. In this episode, Phil Smith delves into how the church is uniquely called to respond to global need, following Christ's example. If you're just joining the podcast, we'd recommend going back and starting from episode one and listening to the episodes in order. Let's dive in.
1: Chapter Two, Making a Feast for Jesus, written by Phil Smith. Three out of four ways the church tries to share the gospel will fail to have long-term results. I think Jesus implies as much in the parable of the soils, Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 to 23. So we shouldn't be surprised when money and effort spent on sharing the good news often seem to have little long-term benefit. There are two choices. Continue to do the same things over and over and expect different results, which is one definition of insanity, or imitate the example in another parable and change the way we do things. In Luke thirteen six through 9, Jesus describes a worker who wasn't content to have soil conditions that would result in an unproductive tree. He took the initiative to change the soil by digging and fertilizing. Isn't it time to consider modifying some of our past methods in an attempt to improve how effectively we share the gospel with the whole world? As we consider gospel-sharing efforts in the developing world, we are immediately faced with an issue that cannot be ignored. How much of the church's precious resources should be used to contend with the genuine problem of poverty? Since Jesus said, The poor you will always have with you, Matthew twenty-six 11, isn't attempting to alleviate poverty a pointless task, like pouring water down a drain? Besides, isn't a healthy portion of the money we pay in taxes funding the massive amounts of aid the United States sends to developing countries? Wouldn't working to end poverty distract the church from its mission of proclaiming salvation in Jesus Christ? And doesn't it seem like the church should be focused on achievable goals rather than a utopian social dream? My understanding of poverty and the church's proper response began to change at home in my favorite room, the kitchen. My wife, Shannon, is a professional chef who loves teaching youngsters how to cook. Peeking into the kitchen one day, I saw my daughter and three other girls cooking. Meredith was chopping onions with sunglasses on to keep her eyes from watering while Hannah was tentatively cutting carrots, and the two other girls were working at their own assigned tasks. Under Sharon's tutelage, these teenagers were making a feast of roasted pepper pork with raspberry sauce, garlic potatoes, and fresh sauteed green beans. As I walked back to my office, it hit me. Meredith wasn't just mechanically chopping onions. She was making a feast. Hannah wasn't just cutting carrots. She was preparing a banquet. With a common purpose, recipes, and teamwork, the girls were creating something greater and more beautiful than the sum of its parts. While you can chop vegetables without making a feast, you can't make a feast without chopping vegetables. Sitting in my office... I thought about the church's stance on international poverty and missions. What are we making, I wondered? A feast or just a mountain of carrot sticks? There are Christians doing millions of tasks around the world every day. We give away wheelchairs, start orphanages, pass out bags of rice and dig wells. We proclaim the gospel, teach in theological institutions, and plant churches. Surely all these activities are good, but how do they join together in making a savory feast? What is the recipe that should unite the efforts of the church? Here is the key question. Is serving those in poverty a distraction from our core mission of evangelism and discipleship, or is it a necessary ingredient? Jesus said, People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Luke 13:29. As we consider how to do our part in making the feast, and increasing the number of invitees, let's explore the biblical and historical background of service to families in need and examine its contemporary relevance. A Paradox For the first 50 years of my life, I didn't recognize one of the paradoxes in my thought process. Most churches I attended had a missions committee focused on evangelism and a separate benevolence committee that responded to need. This structure disconnected proclaiming the gospel from meeting physical needs. Church members seemed to internalize the message that the two functions were separate. Missions committees were motivated and directed by scriptures such as, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and 20. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8 And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Romans 10.14-15 With these scriptures in mind, the Missions Committee spent their budgets primarily on sending U.S. missionaries overseas or to isolated communities in the U.S. Benevolence Committees were motivated by scriptures such as, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Matthew 25.40 Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Luke 18.22 Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? James two fifteen and 16. Heeding these words, they feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and shelter the homeless. Most often this occurs in the local community, but sometimes it is done overseas too. The acts of meeting spiritual needs and physical needs are so often separated that many Christians no longer seem to notice. How does Scripture lead us in thinking through this issue? Let's examine the life of Christ and the response of the early church. The example of Jesus. In Luke 4, 16-30, Jesus publicly declares His mandate on earth for the first time. He is speaking to people who think they know Him, yet His words produce a murderous fury. What could have been so inflammatory? Jesus first reads from the Old Testament passage of Isaiah 61:1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke 4:18 and 19. Jesus takes those familiar words and startles his listeners with his one-point sermon. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He goes on to say these benefits will extend to those outside of the Jewish faith. When Jesus spoke of the year of the Lord's favor, he was probably referring to the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, a trumpet was blown on the Day of Atonement to proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Leviticus 25.10 This proclamation freed people from crushing debt and slavery and returned land to families who had been forced by economic hardship to sell it. Jubilee alleviated the worst effects of continuing indebtedness and poverty. It was the release from debt and the restoration of rightful inheritance. This way of describing the mission of Jesus has both concrete and spiritual dimensions. The word release in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew means breaking free from financial debts as well as the release from or forgiveness of sins. God is concerned about economic realities, physical imprisonment, and visual blindness, but he also speaks of freedom from the debt of sin and spiritual bondage. Jesus lived this full definition of release by combining care for the physical person with care for the soul. From the beginning, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people, Matthew 4.23. He both proclaimed and demonstrated freedom in its most complete sense. At the start of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist sent two of his men to Jesus with this question, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? As Luke tells the story in Luke 7.18-23, it appears Jesus heard the question and without saying a word, turned away and continued whatever he was already doing. After a time, Jesus sent the two men back to John with instructions to tell him what they had seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. When Jesus specifically sets out to prove that he is the Messiah, the Promised One, what does he do? he meets physical needs and preaches good news. There were times when Jesus taught and other times he simply met people's physical needs. In each situation, he did what best demonstrated the expansive nature of the kingdom of God, that it will last for eternity and is already here changing lives. Rather than viewing the actions and teachings of Jesus as a rainbow spectrum of loving and necessary interactions, we often separate the colors with a distorted prism because we want to emphasize one thing or another. Perhaps we have a personal preference for spoken evangelism or for fighting physical hunger, but our preferences should not place filters before our eyes and cause us to ignore the balance that's so evident in the life of Christ. A clear example of an unfiltered viewpoint is the interplay between the Great Commission and the Greatest Commandment. Not long before departing earth, Jesus commissioned His disciples, saying, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and 20 Yet only a few weeks earlier, Jesus had given the greatest commandment by stating, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37-39 The ministry of Christ demonstrated the seamless harmony of obeying both the Great Commission and the greatest commandment. The Early Disciples Immediately following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his followers imitated his pattern of meeting both physical and spiritual needs. They understood the ministry of Jesus was to be continued on earth through them by the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples did not separate doing good works from proclaiming the good news. The gospel wasn't only an abstract idea that could save souls, but tangible good news with earthly relevance. This had been impressed on the disciples not only by the daily actions of Jesus, but in their first assignments. When Jesus sent out the twelve apostles, and later when he sent out the seventy disciples, his instructions focused on two things, preaching the good news and meeting physical needs. Their results were so astounding, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Luke 10.18 Many years later, the concern of James, Peter, and John, that those in poverty be included in the ongoing proclamation of Christ's message prompted them to encourage Paul to continue to remember the poor. Paul's response was that this was the very thing I had been eager to do all along, Galatians two ten. That may seem an unlikely response from the apostle so well known for his theological writings that focus on orthodoxy, right beliefs, yet Paul was just as concerned with orthopraxis, right living, and how faith impacts the way we serve others. For Paul, a proper understanding of what God does for us should change the way we live, including how we interact with people in poverty. Take the example of the church Paul started in Ephesus, which changed the culture of its city and swelled to as many as 50,000 members. Acts 19 shows Paul's progress and influence there. He first tried to take the gospel to the Jews in that city. After limited success, he started the first Christian college. In just two years, Paul may have lectured more than 4,000 hours in the school, but he did more than just preach the good news. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Acts 19, 11 and 12. In Paul's last meeting with the elders of Ephesus, he emphasized the importance of both sharing the gospel directly and meeting physical needs. He said, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Acts 20.24 He continued, In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, We must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20.35 Paul, perhaps the church's most influential theologian, knew followers of Christ were called to an integrated life. There was no question that throughout the New Testament, the apostles and other leaders were intent on meeting both the spiritual and physical needs of others, just as Jesus was. In the following centuries, early Christians were intent on doing the same. The Early Church Rodney Stark argues persuasively in The Rise of Christianity that Christianity rose to prominence in the Roman world during the first three centuries after Jesus because Christians met the physical and spiritual needs of people even during times of plague and suffering. He says the obscure Jewish sect became a dominant religious force as a result of its social benefits. In times of crisis, Christians loved all people, not just their own. The early centuries of Christianity were trying and difficult times, and epidemics were rampant. Out of fear of catching these illnesses, unbelievers often fled outbreaks, while Christians stayed behind to provide care for those in need. As a result, many unbelievers— who had been essentially abandoned by their previous social networks, converted to Christianity. The doctrines of the Christian faith suddenly made sense to people because they saw that the everyday practice of those doctrines produced a better life. Consequently, Christian community was something for which many people longed. Christianity grew because it was attractive and inclusive. When suffering people received the love of a Christian community, they often wanted to be a part of that community. While the early Christians still longed for the rewards of heaven, they experienced the blessings of God in their day-to-day lives as well. Due to the influence of Constantine in the 4th century, the Roman Catholic Church became the dominant repository of Christian life in the Western world. Its history of meeting spiritual and physical needs since then is uneven, but certainly there have been leaders of great compassion throughout the centuries, such as St. Augustine, whose church conducted rescue operations when slave ships landed in their town, St. Francis of Assisi, famous for both helping those in poverty and preaching the gospel, and St. Catherine of Siena, who stayed behind to care for the sick when others fled the onslaught of the plague in the 14th century. In 18th and 19th century England and United States, the pattern of engagement with social concerns remained an unmistakable companion for the message of Christ. One historian said that this period, known as the Evangelical Revival, did more to transfigure the moral character of the general populace than any other movement British history can record. The Clapham sect, including its famous leader William Wilberforce, emerged from this Evangelical Revival. The members of this group were primarily influential Anglicans who showed the power of a ministry in which proclamation and demonstration were inseparable. They were instrumental in founding missionary and tract societies, including the British and Foreign Bible Society and the Church Missionary Society. They also worked tirelessly to combat injustices and establish righteousness throughout the world. Their efforts centered on the liberation of slaves, the abolition of the slave trade both in Britain and around the world, and the reform of the penal system. As celebrated by the movie Amazing Grace, the year 2006 marked the bicentennial of the abolition of the slave trade in England, the best known of their efforts. One member of the Clapham sect, Hannah Moore, played a significant role among the disadvantaged communities where she served. In Fierce Convictions, Karen Swallow Pryor profiles how Moore served her community by establishing banking cooperatives among women who were excluded from the banks. These banking clubs allowed women to save small amounts of money each quarter safely with a larger group. Then, if one of the members of the club lost her job or contracted an illness, she received a payment from the group to help her cope. During this time, there were many other groups and individuals who combined word and deed as they battled social evils around the world, such as the opium trade, forced labor, kidnapping, prostitution, the caste system, and infanticide. Missionaries were as well known for their help in medicine, clean water, and agriculture as for their sharing of the gospel. Bishop John Cheverus, a Catholic priest and community activist, answered the call to move from France to Boston in the 1800s, where he lived among the Native Americans and learned their language, nursed the sick and dying during two yellow fever epidemics, and created a safe place for the working class to save their money. John Livingston Nivius, a Presbyterian missionary in China, introduced the modern orchard industry into Shantong. The Basil missionaries revolutionized the economy of Ghana by introducing coffee and cocoa grown by families and individuals on their own land. James McKean transformed the life of northern Thailand by helping eliminate its three major curses, smallpox, malaria, and leprosy. Wells and clean water, which helped eliminate many illnesses, often came through the help of missionaries. Throughout the 19th century, missionaries stressed the importance of industrial schools from their industries were established. If the biblical and historical Christian response to poverty is a unified emphasis on the good news and good deeds, why doesn't there seem to be that same level of integration in the efforts of the church in the U.S. today? Great Reversals. As the evangelical revival swept through the United States and England, many church leaders tended to have a strong emphasis on just preaching and conversion. A reversal occurred, according to historian Timothy L. Smith, in Revivalism and Social Reform, when many Christians wanted to concentrate primarily on social needs they believed were being neglected. For instance, Walter Rauschenbusch, a leader of the social gospel movement in the early 1900s, practiced a faith that addressed poverty and injustice, maintaining that a kingdom of God that is abstracted into some heavenly afterlife is worthless in the slums. The kingdom of God is the Christian transformation of the social order, Rauschenbusch wrote in 1917 in A Theology of the Social Gospel. Such Christians devoted their lives to transforming the earth into a kingdom of God with no poverty or social injustice. During this time, Christians and their leaders were also being exposed to the intellectual challenges of Darwinism and secular humanism. For many of these people, the desire to share the old-time religion receded further and further, while emphasis on dealing with people in the here and now became dominant. Such an emphasis on the physical reality of the kingdom meant, in some cases, a near exclusion of the spiritual realm. A purely social message missed key points about the eternal nature of the kingdom of God and the gospel. This inevitably sparked a backlash and another reversal from Christians concerned with recovering the spiritual and eternal elements of Christ's message. These believers stressed faith over works and evangelism over relief. And so the pendulum swung back. Many in the church dismissed the social demands of the gospel entirely, going instead to the opposite extreme of focusing entirely on the spiritual. As the two camps polarized, an integrated approach to the ministry of word and deed became harder to grasp. The growing evangelical movements in the early 1900s illustrated this change as their emphasis on teaching and preaching seemed to portray these as the only ministries worthy of the church's time and attention. As one example of that legacy, consider the curriculum of the vast majority of evangelical seminaries. The focus is overwhelmingly on teaching and preaching, and there are few courses devoted to finding innovative and meaningful ways to minister to people physically. As this shift in emphasis occurred, the primary concern for many Christians became going to heaven. Over time, Americans, both Christian and otherwise, often acquire the understanding that the singular role of Christianity is to arrive at heaven's gate and to be allowed entry. Although that is certainly something to anticipate with joy, it ignores Jesus' clear, integrated teaching that God's kingdom exists on earth as well. Jesus taught his followers to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10 We are instructed to be simultaneously citizens of a future kingdom and ambassadors in this time and place. While we wait for a future with Christ... We are called to do everything we can to bring elements of that glorious future into this world. Jesus talked often about a kingdom that is breaking into this world right now, a kingdom that isn't marked by opulent buildings, but by opulent acts of compassion and kindness. This kingdom isn't characterized by its military might, but by its willingness to kneel down in selfless service. Bryant L. Myers, a leading voice for Christian engagement with poverty, summarizes this divisive situation. So evangelism, restoring people's relationship with God, is spiritual work, while social action, restoring just economic, social, and political relationships among people, is not. In the final analysis, this false dichotomy leads Christians to believe that God's redemptive work takes place only in the spiritual realm, while the world is left, seemingly, to the devil. Because we have tended to accept the dichotomy between the spiritual and the physical, we sometimes inadvertently limit the scope of both sin and the gospel. Isn't this the government's responsibility? The Church's response to poverty in the United States has also been affected by the increased involvement of our federal and state governments in social programs. The social programs instituted to overcome the devastation of the Great Depression which included Social Security, the G.I. Bill and other programs following World War II, the Great Society's Social Bills of the 1960s, and many other massive pieces of legislation have created a social safety net. Without commenting on the efficiency or effectiveness of these programs, we can observe that they further distance the church in the United States from the job of engaging poverty and other social injustices. The work of addressing physical needs was increasingly seen as government work while the church increased its focus on the spiritual realm. An unhelpful dichotomy Modern thought encourages us to think in hierarchical categories. The word priority is an illustration of this. Christian organizations, when considering how to budget their time and money, often develop a list of priorities based on the Bible. However, more often than not, The Bible speaks of integrated responsibilities, for example, faith and works, and tensions. Example, the kingdom is both already and not yet here, over priorities. When Jesus was asked to prioritize the commandments, he summarized all the law and the prophets in just two. Love God, love your neighbor. Any priority list that doesn't align with these commands will cause us to miss the full picture of what God desires for us. Consider how the end of the Great Commission passage in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and 20 is often interpreted. Jesus said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In many instances, this teaching is understood to refer exclusively to propositional evangelism. Yet Jesus had something far greater in mind to follow everything he taught with his words and with his life. This passage should point believers toward the ministry model of Jesus, who seamlessly integrated proclamation and practice in his ministry to all people, with special attention paid to the vulnerable and downtrodden. A Way Forward Based on scripture and history, I believe church-based programs are most effective when they simultaneously meet both spiritual and physical needs in a culturally appropriate manner. As we will discuss later, to accomplish this, it might be the case that multiple people and organizations need to work side by side without competition or jealousy. If an integrated approach to making disciples is a scriptural imperative, followers of Christ are not at liberty to choose between proclaiming Christ or serving the needs of the world. While this fact may cause discomfort for Christians for a variety of reasons, we should ultimately rejoice in the many advantages of integrated ministry. Here are a few. Integration increases effectiveness. The effectiveness of physical ministry and the effectiveness of verbal ministry are each enhanced when done together. Integration re-energizes the church. U.S. Christians can rightly be accused of being too inwardly focused. Service is what the church was designed for, and when we do it, we benefit in many ways. Integration helps correct an image problem. Christians are often known only for what we are against. Helping people materially provides a way for followers of Jesus to be known for something positive. Leroy Barber, co-founder and executive director of The Voices Project, lays down the gauntlet. Christian rhetoric without tangible acts of love is hypocrisy. Integration improves trust and builds relationships. Research shows that the majority of Christians came to faith as a result of a relationship. Although not supported by rigorous data analysis, my own experience certainly supports the finding that relationships are the most important factor in people coming to faith. God's Body on Earth, The Church is uniquely able to provide a special feast for people around the world by simultaneously meeting spiritual and physical needs. Many of the church's characteristics that allow it to function so well in this regard are obvious, such as its physical presence in so many communities around the world. But God provided some additional strategies for the church to use. Charity is one of those strategies that is not only biblically recommended, but also relatively easy to use. Unfortunately, it can also be easily misused.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Created to Flourish podcast. This podcast is a production of Hope International, a global nonprofit that responds to the call to serve those living in poverty by providing discipleship, biblically based training, a safe place to save, and small business loans. If you're interested in learning more about Hope International, we invite you to check out Hope's website www.hopeinternational.org slash flourish.